All right, well, good morning. I guess uh, I'm, I'm really privileged to, to have uh, time here now with, with Pamela. Uh, Pamela is, uh, is a uh, lawyer, a solicitor. She uh, is a professor of commercial law and regulation at the University of New South Wales. Uh, Pamela also is on the board of our philanthropic think tank, the Conexus Institute, and is a great contributor. Uh, she's been here, like the judge, for the for the all of yesterday and today, because she'd like to understand this sector even more, and, and humbly was just saying how much she learned from yesterday's sessions. Uh, but I'd like to start out, I guess, with your, to create context for the audience, Pamela, what was your role with the Royal Commission? So the Royal Commission, um, the instructing solicitors decided that they would produce a set of background papers that summarised the existing law for different parts of the financial sector. And the purpose of doing that was that the commissioner was very keen to get straight to the issues and not have that experience that we were talking about yesterday of debating what the foundation principles, legal principles actually are. So I was responsible for the paper on financial advice to households, the superannuation paper, and then another one that we did that compared elements of our regulatory structure with peer jurisdictions like the US and the UK. So. So conscious, and we'll come to other jurisdictions and, and what we can learn from them in terms of structure in a moment, conscious that we have only 25 minutes uh, to kick this off and it will set the scene for the rest of the day. What did you learn from the Royal Commission and the experience of being inside the tent of, of Kenneth Hayne and uh, others, Rowena Orr and other impressive characters drawing out such an intense experience over those nine months? It, it was a very intense experience and I think um, reflecting on it too and a bit years later, I'm not sure that we're where I thought we would be at this point. So both in terms of industry structure and law reform, the government has walked away from a number of the recommendations in the Royal Commission. Uh, and which you promised not to do. Which you promised not to do. And, and, and in fact, Treasurer Frydenberg did say all would be implemented 100%, and then COVID came along. Was that just being used as, a, as an excuse? Well, they've made some policy decisions, not so much in the financial advice space, but in, for example, responsible lending, uh, and also, and I'll come back to this in a moment, in the uh, new superannuation reforms, which are, again, contrary to the position that the Commissioner arrived at. It was good discipline for me to be surrounded by a lot of barristers. <laughs> it's a different branch of the profession and it's, it was a highly inquisitorial process with very skilled senior counsel. And I think anyone who's been through that experience, uh, whether as a regulator being grilled at estimates or as a chief executive being grilled in a royal commission, that kind of forensic examination of your business is very searing. Uh, but I think the Commissioner found that the things that we've always worried about, going back to the last century in financial advice, the risks about people not being competent to give the advice that they give, the risks that people have conflicts that they don't even recognise themselves, and the opacity in some of the fee arrangements, they were themes that we've been talking about, Colin, for 25 years. And I think they were still present in some of those case studies. Okay, so let's start with what do you see as the primary problem of the provision of advice in Australia? Ah, well, what's the prime? I think you have to answer that question looking at three different groups. So for households, and I deliberately use that expression, not retail client, I try never to use any of the definitions that are in the Corporations Act because I don't want to um, spoil, queer the pitch for um, Justice Darrington. She can argue about that. But for households, um, I think the cohort of households that the people in this room serve get 
good service. They get better service than they did before the important part of Bernie's reforms, which was the conflicted remuneration, the best interest duty we'll talk about in a minute. But um, I think for that cohort, it's well served. Um, I don't think that you can wind back any of the protections around those three risks in that very intense, high touch, high trust environment that most of the people in this room work in. I think the risk of com conflicts, particularly unrecognised conflicts, is still there. I think the competence issue is even more there as um, the complex relationship with the tax system, social security, aged care, all of that, you know, it's, it's a high competence piece, which is why it's expensive to train new advisors as it is to train new lawyers, you know, we have the same problem. Uh, and I think the fees issue is still uh, there. I think getting the, the clients to understand what they're paying for and what the value is, doesn't matter how much it costs, doesn't matter whether it's good value. So I think for that cohort that we're servicing at the moment, um, they're getting a better solution now than they were when I was enforced, you know, running enforcement actions against Storm and others. Um, but I'm not sure that that model is capable of being scaled up. I, I appreciate that there's a lot that could be done, particularly around fact find and the production of documents and so on, where um, there's a lot of efficiency that you could pull out of that system. The problem is it's, you're a pretty small sector. There's not a heap of capital around. They're big investments. Uh, big tech investments in particular, you know, are high risk and very expensive and hard to deliver. Um, so I worry about that client group that we were talking about yesterday, the sort of lower balance retirees. And I have got... Well, you're, you've got very strong views, in yeah. fact, that that, that, that that cohort that Dr Don Russell's speaking about, 80% of Australians, yeah. the majority of Australians, we should give up that this group, that the advice sector actually can impact that group, yeah. that that should be a tech response, a super fund guidance response or something that's not financial advice and that the financial advice industry is trying to fix a problem that it can't fix and that the financial advice industry represented by the people in this room should be for the wealthy and let's get over trying to make it uh, fix, fix it to make it more broadly available. Is that putting words to me, words in your mouth? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say the, the wealthy, although I think there are a number of licensees in this room that would readily accept that proposition and, and are not trying to roll that out more at scale. Um, so I think the problem for that client group is that underserviced, we call it in the property sector the missing middle, you know, like that missing middle piece. I think Treasury has a massive problem Treasury has a massive problem. It has this deplorable piece of legislation. It's shocking. And I was, I said yesterday, I, you know, I learned a lot. When, as lawyers, you sit in the room with people who want to comply with the law and say, we can't get the same advice from different law firms about what the law requires us to do, not only is that very upsetting and an indication of a failed piece of legislation, but it opens up the opportunity for opinion shopping for people who are seeking a competitive edge to go and kind of game the system. Um, and I don't blame the Treasury officials for this, but uh, if you wanted to talk about regulatory stewardship, uh, you would say to the government you can't introduce new law without repealing a piece of existing law. This government has no problem introducing more law that adds more complexity and seems not to be concerned about it at all. And in the superannuation space, 
your future your super? Uh, the Royal Commission was asked the question, do we need to amend the trustees' best interest duty um, to a best financial interest? Now, the Commissioner is a pretty eminent judge. Uh, he was asked that question. He answered it directly. The answer to that was, no, we do not need to amend that. They put that legislation out for consultation. Every single lawyer who, whatever dog they had in that fight, wrote to the Treasury and said, this change is not doing what you think it is. It will add to complexity and uncertainty, and yet they go ahead and do it anyway. So I think the law-making process, regardless of what you think about the policy, the actual process by which law is being made, Treasury needs to have a really hard think about that. And I think from the licensee and advisor point of view, the thing that I got from yesterday, what's our big issue? I think we still have some work to do about understanding what it means to be a fiduciary, regardless of what the legislation says. I think we, as lawyers, maybe haven't done a good enough job of explaining to people just exactly what that entails. The Commissioner said that he wasn't prepared to rule out vertical integration, which I now see as being repackaged as not vertical but horizontal integration with, you know, common ownership across different business lines. Um, he did say, I'm, I, I think in theory you could do it, but I'd struggle to see how you would. That's what he said. And I think in that true fiduciary advice space, so that high trust, holistic, ongoing advice relationship, I think the conflicts issue is difficult to resolve. So the two CEOs that we heard from last night, I think that's a big piece of work that they need to think further about. Yeah, I agree. So Pamela, I'm going to go to a polling question in a moment to get our audience woken, woken up and, <laughs> and uh, for those that haven't had enough coffee yet. I'd like to um, ask you though, from the prism of the legal fraternity, of which you're a very well-regarded senior member, uh, the law fraternity, and you look into this group, this, the, rep, the group represented by this group, let me say, um, striving to become a profession. And we've heard thrown around yesterday by me and others compared to the legal fraternity, the medical fraternity. What do you see from, what do you, how do you think the law, legal fraternity, views financial advice in Australia? And what do you see is the gap? Uh, gee, I'm being asked to speak for a large group of people who um, think about our professionalism in a different way. I think it would be reasonable for me to say that from inside an old profession, this doesn't look like a profession yet. Um, and I'm not sure that you can make it that by legislation. And um, so, you know, single disciplinary body and the, that terrible Fazia thing, which has got nothing to do with ethics as far as I can tell. It's just, you know, drafting other legislation that's inconsistent with existing legislation. Um, it doesn't yet have the hallmarks of a profession. I think the type of advice that people in this room enjoy giving. So yesterday I asked a lot of people, you know, what do you like best about what you do? And it was very much that kind of being a partner with the client, helping the client achieve their goals, that, that kind of thing, rather than a technical type solution. So I think it does, the service that that type of financial advisor provides um, will be a profession eventually, but I don't think we can legislate that into existence, and I think there's still a bit of a distance to go. 
So, some ways you might ask, why is this question relevant? I think it's very relevant. Please take out your devices and we'll put the first polling question up for the day. Do you see your organisation one day supporting households that have limited wealth and or financial literacy? A, yes, that's, that is, you're already doing it. B, yes, but not a priority. C, no, it's not a viable revenue stream. And finally, D, no, because of compliance concerns. If you can grab your, oh, have you already answered it? You guys are a bit ahead of the game, aren't you? Look at you. Okay, there we go, thanks. Well, that, 45 of you answered, keep going. The rest of you, please. Um, so, there you go. Early scores, Pamela, what do you think? Any surprises there? No, because I know everyone disagrees with me anyway. <laughs> so half the room is saying that they're already supporting uh, lower income, uh, limited wealth, or, f or low financial literacy households. Can you grab a mic, please, Paul? I'm just reflecting the view here. I don't think it says what you just said. I, I interpret That's very possible. Different. I, interpret, I interpreted that as, yes, we would consider it if it was supported, i.e. in some sort of government framework, super fund. Oh, okay. Is that, is that, does anyone disagree with that interpretation? <laughs> right, so I got that wrong, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay, great. So no one's doing it at the moment, but they would if it was supported. Yeah. Um, no, no, no. <laughs> All right, so actually, let's hear a couple more people in the room in, in terms of your interpretation of the question and how, what, where you can hear us going with this conversation. So, yep, yeah, please, just didn't announce you who you are and your organisation. Hi, uh, it's Nicola here from Fiduciary Duty Advisors. Um, you have to interpret the question either way because you could say yes if supported, but we're doing it anyway, even though it's not supported. Yeah, and do you do it and it's profitable? You do it as a service or...? Mostly as a service. I wouldn't say a lot of what we do is that profitable. A lot, of, a lot is, but we have clients from very, very, very wealthy to quite poor right. and also free. So, so you, you, if you will, subsidise the lower income clients from the higher value clients? Um, we just look after everybody. <laughs> okay. Okay, thank you. Table four, I heard a few noises. Someone want to grab the mic there? You were noisy without a microphone. You must, there you go, grab the microphone, thanks. That was Is my fault, Colin, Tim Steele. Um, oh, look, I just said I didn't think the question was being read the same way you interpreted it. And the question for me is, is how dependent are we on technology to potentially solve for that segment of the market, I think is the real interesting question, because current business models don't allow it. Yeah, so why don't you say a bit more about that? You've obviously had a very senior role at MLC. Uh, you had a big balance sheet of NAB to help support technology. Uh, I mean, technology solutions, as Renato, Renato and, and uh, Scott were saying last night, seems to be one of the great disappointments, I would think, that they haven't been more successful and implementable at this time. Can you elaborate? I would say, and I've spoken to a number of people in this room about this, there are very few industries that operate the same way today they did 10, 20 years ago, despite all the technological advancements. And so the cost and risk of providing advice has not materially changed at all in that period. And so, therefore, the, the market we serve doesn't change. You still are predominantly focused on that affluent or high net worth market in reality. 
Interestingly enough, in the UK, um, they had something called the Retail Advice Review. UK government's interesting because it will do these reviews and then say, oh, actually, we did a really bad job and <laughs> didn't solve the problem we sought to solve, which is kind of refreshing. Um, but one of the things that they had thought about in their market was this question of can you serve, can you do it more efficiently and therefore open it up to other people using technology? And they had the same experience in the UK that it was just the technology uptake by the industry was not there. Um, and this technology requires a significant investment. So I was thinking maybe it's just that the market in Australia is too small to justify the investment, but they seem to have had the same experience in the UK, which is interesting. In New Zealand as well? Well, New Zealand's a slightly different market for all the reasons that um, Dr. Russell was talking about yesterday. So they don't have the same um, structure in their industry or in their regulation. I did suggest at one point, almost tongue in cheek, that we ought to just repeal chapter seven in its entirety and use the um, New Zealand law for a year and then see if we were any worse off. But nobody seemed to think that that was a good idea other than me. Some of the um, some of the narrative you hear in this sector and in this room, in, in fact, is that the Royal Commission was a very noisy episode that kept uh, the front pages of media very busy, and that that was not absolutely reflective of a sector-wide problem, uh, and that they feel the media beat up on this sector unfairly, um, trade media, but particularly I think consumer and financial media. What's your views? I, I don't agree with that. I think the purpose of a Royal Commission is to inquire into things that went wrong. It wasn't a policy inquiry, so I know that a lot of people felt pretty beat up by the experience. Uh, but the purpose of the exercise was to look at where there were problems and to do that in a way that really put people's feet to the fire. Um, so, yeah, I, I realise that... Will I say it? The financial, the financial advice industry, through a series of shadow shopping exercises and other things that had been happening from 2005 onwards, was not a good industry. And there were lots of clients who had got either bad outcomes or suboptimal outcomes, you know, inexpensive products, paying too much and so on. Um, so, it's very difficult to talk about that. I think, you know, my inclination is to say, but I don't mean you, right? But I don't mean you. But when you look at the Royal Commission, you realise that these are the most well-resourced and presumably organisations with the most reputational skin in the game in the country. These are not fringe operators, and yet you have this systemic issues about conduct that when you stood back from the industry and looked at it, made no sense to people, just felt exploitative to people. And that's a very difficult thing to confront. Um, ask the former members of the board of Crown Resorts how that feels, right? But you can't walk away from it. You can't just say, this is, oh, you know, it's just a whole lot of bad apples and hooray, now we've finally got a government that's all about cutting red tape and maybe they'll get rid of those protections against conflicts and against um, people being unqualified and their fees not being well understood by their clients and so on. It's not going to happen. So you've got to work out regulation doesn't exist for 
to lift up good people. It sets a fence around to keep the bad people out and we have to look very carefully at what happened there. And I wonder, um, maybe it's because I spent too, I was too close to it at the time, but I feel like we've been quite f quick government and the industry to walk away from a lot of things that came out of that and not maybe taken that opportunity, as Patricia Bergen said in Crown, you know, it's not about what you've done in the past, it's about your ability to face up to it and think about what you would do differently. And I, I think we need to do that, so. Okay, so given that. I don't mean anyone in the room. <laughs> or very nice. <laughs> Thank you for your straight talk and your contribution and being brave. Uh, we've got only about four or five minutes left. I would like to allow a couple of minutes further for questions if there are any in the room. But given all of this, uh, if this industry was able to convince government or opposition, um, and in fact I'm having a private dinner tonight with Albanese and Dr Jim Chalmers, Richard Miles, Stephen Jones, Katie Gallagher, they're the financial team of, uh, that would be leading the country if they were to win office uh, later this year, or early next year. Uh, they're keen to put out policies of uh, transformational change in a whole bunch of areas. I'd suggest this is one of them. But if they were to, if, if Labor or, or the current government, less likely, was to say, okay, you guys, let's start again. Give you a blank sheet of paper, line in the sand. What are your radical ideas? Radical ideas? Um, I think that there is room for what I would describe as non-fiduciary advice. Um, although I don't like to use the word advice, I think guidance is probably better. I think there is space for that and I think it can be made to work, but it doesn't work at the moment. And if you had non-fiduciary advice, it might look like sales, right? It might look like marketing, it might be different providers of that. I think you could protect people appropriately in that world but you would need to give up the myth that you were somehow acting in their best, in, exclusively in their best interests and, and so on. I think that the high trust advice will always be fiduciary. Regard, you would repeal the whole Corporations Act. It's already a fiduciary relationship. Read Daily and Sydney Stock Exchange where the stockbroker gave one piece of advice to a client and it was fiduciary in character. So you could repeal the whole thing. The question is how do, how do we protect customers in a non-fiduciary advice setting because that will be um, more commercially viable for industry to provide. So I would start with that. And I hope that the terms of reference to the inquiry that's to take place next year, one of the few recommendations of the Hayden Royal Commission that seems to have survived in its original form, um, I hope that that will be on the table. I think it's unhelpful for people to say, well, you know, I always act in my client's best interest when the commercial context and the business model is just not consistent with a true understanding of fiduciary responsibility. So I would start with that. Excellent. And failing that, what have these guys got to work with? To, to reach out to 2030, as the title of this session is, what could the, could the sector look like? What have they got to work with with the current rules of the game? I think that there's probably been a correction in workforce for, for the kind of advice that you do and do well. I think you're going through a process where the fall in the number of advisors is probably right. Like that's probably what was supposed to happen in terms of qualifications and business viability and all that sort of stuff. But 
the growth in that sector will be linked to how many wealthy people there are in Australia, frankly. So if Australian wealth keeps going up um, and you've got that big intergenerational transfer, then there'll be a big demand for your services and then the question will be, well, how do we train up enough people to provide that service? The other piece, that missing middle, I'm not sure what that service provision will look like yet, but I suspect it will be connected to the person's primary financial relationship and that may end up being their super fund rather than their bank. So my final question, and I know we're about to roll into uh, my colleague Matt Smith, our managing editor, who will be interviewing Danielle Press, Commissioner of ASIC. Uh, my final question to you is, there seems to sadly always be uh, a cohort within this broader ecosystem that are uh, rat runners that kind of find the next uh, hole to chase ahead of the law or around the law. Uh, and right now there are over 220 firms that have been created in the last 18 months and by our estimates around 2,000 advisors who were part of the regulated, ASIC regulated AFSL environment who are now calling themselves wealth trainers or uh, you know, financial um, gym experts or whatever they're calling themselves um, and flogging products, money, coach. money coaches, money coaches. Uh, technically creating a whole illegal uh, group, but somehow still getting away with it. They're not ASIC regulated, etc. I can see the next train crash already coming um, that will again smash consumers, hit the media, hit politics, and hurt this group here, running legitimate businesses, trying to be professions. What do we do? Okay, there's two definitions that need to be fixed urgently. One is whether you want to just regulate the provision of financial product advice, which is actually the regulated service, or when you, whether you think there's a case for expanding that to financial guidance or whatever. That's the first. But the second one, please, I know that it will be unpopular, but the definition of retail client, that dividing line between, which is why I always talk about households, I never talk about retail client, I think I first wrote to the government suggesting that maybe they could just index it to inflation, the test, um, in about 2005. So, and I'm still there. So that 500,000 threshold between retail and wholesale client has been in the securities law since 1994 and never changed. So- What do you suggest that what happens with that? I think, I, I would say, and most people in this room run their business on that way. If it's a household client, if it's a private client, then they should get the protections. Maybe not if they're ultra high net worth, like 10 million under management or something like that. But, but I think, uh, particularly having been a little bit bruised by the Mayfair 101 experience last year, where again I failed to edit my <laughs> comments quite as carefully as. Don't edit I them. Come have. on, Bama. Come yeah. on. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so I, I think those two things. So work out what it is that you think needs to be regulated. If it's not just financial product advice, now's the time to think about that and think about whether all households should get the protections, whatever they end up being, rather than that artificial dividing line between retail and wholesale that we have at the moment. Excellent. Noted, and I'm, I'm sure Danielle Press is listening to these comments, uh, although we're about to bring her in digitally. I know Lawrence is breathing down my neck, but really quickly, are there any burning comments or questions? No, wow, it's that clear. <laughs> See, you're a very articulate communicator, Pamela. No one? Okay, excellent. Well, we'll finish on time or close enough. Uh, please put your hands together. Pamela Hanrahan. Thank you. Thank you.